Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news. If it's about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, this is where you'll hear about it first, without the hype and distortion of other media sources. With the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, along the way, trying to better educate the general public about mental health issues and to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis. And speaking of coping with stress, this edition of Psychiatry Today has been pre-recorded for airing first on April the 15th, 2015. Hopefully, if you were entitled to a refund this year, you've already gotten it. And uh, if you're like those of us who owed some money, hopefully it didn't take too big a bite out of your wallets. Ouch. All right, well, we're going to put that aside for the moment, no matter how much you owed your federal treasury or your state treasury, and jump right into a very controversial issue indeed. Uh, We certainly have had no shortage of debates in this country about gun ownership and mental health issues with so many sad, terrible mass shooting episodes over the last several years. Uh, Seems like the seeds sown by Columbine unfortunately continue to bear fruit. Uh, Jared Loeffner, the shooting in Arizona, um, the theater gunman in Colorado, uh, the list just unfortunately goes on and on. But it turns out that if you weren't already frightened by that, then listen to this. Nearly one in ten United States adults have impulsive anger issues and access to guns. Now, before I go any further with this, I want to let you know that I'm staying neutral uh, on the issue of gun ownership or not. So whether you're a card-carrying member of the NRA or you're firmly in the gun control camp, that is not the issue. Uh, That's not important or germane to this topic. Uh, We're purely examining the issue at hand, the findings of this study, right, that one in ten U.S. adults have both impulsive anger and access to guns. An estimated 9% of adults in the United States have a history of impulsive, angry behavior and have access to guns. That, according to a study published this month in Behavioral Sciences and the Law. Now, the study also found that an estimated 1.5% of adults report impulsive anger and carry firearms outside their homes. Angry people with ready access to guns are typically young or middle-aged men who at times lose their temper 
smash and break things, or get into physical fights, according to the study, which was co-authored by scientists at some pretty prestigious institutions of learning and research, Duke, Harvard, and Columbia Universities. Study participants who owned six or more firearms were also far more likely than people with only one or two firearms to carry guns outside the home and to have a history of impulsive, angry behavior. <clears throat> now, as we try to balance constitutional rights and public safety regarding people with mental illness, the traditional legal approach has been to prohibit firearms from those who have a history of involuntary psychiatric uh, hospitalization or those who are involuntarily committed. But researchers with this study have more evidence that current laws don't necessarily keep firearms out of the hands of a lot of potentially dangerous individuals. And again, I want to emphasize I'm not talking about the issue of who should or shouldn't have Second Amendment rights. We're going to assume for the purposes of this discussion that if anyone is entitled to Second Amendment rights, then that should include those who suffer from mental illness. So we're starting from that premise, just to be fair and neutral about the issue. <clears throat> it is not uh, universal that those who've had involuntary psychiatric hospitalizations should have their Second Amendment rights attenuated. It has been looked at more so since Sun Wee Cho committed the massacre at Virginia Tech University. Now, researchers came up with this information that I'm bringing to you by analyzing data from 5,563 face-to-face interviews. Okay, this was not phone interviews. This was not internet questionnaires. Face-to-face -face interviews where you're getting more accurate information. And these were conducted as part of the National Comorbidity Study Replication. What this is, is a nationally representative survey of all mental disorders in the United States. It was originally led by Harvard in the early 2000s to replicate or repeat a similar survey that had been done uh, in the 80s or 90s. Now, the study found little overlap between participants with serious mental illnesses and those with a history of impulsive, angry behavior and access to guns. Gun violence and serious mental illness are two very important but distinct public health issues that intersect only at their edges. Researchers found that anger-prone people with guns were at elevated risk for a range of fairly common psychiatric conditions, such as personality disorders, alcohol abuse, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress, while only a tiny fraction suffered from acute symptoms of major disorders, such as schizophrenia, 
or bipolar disorder. And when you're talking about schizophrenia, you're thinking more along the lines of Jared Loeffner, Sunwee Cho, the uh, theater gunman in Colorado, etc. Fewer than one in ten angry people with access to guns had ever been admitted to a hospital for a psychiatric or substance abuse problem. As a result, most of these individuals' medical histories wouldn't stop them from being able to legally purchase guns under existing mental health-related restrictions. Very few people in this group suffer from the kinds of disorders that often lead to involuntary commitment at a psychiatric hospital and that would therefore legally prohibit them from buying a gun. Now, looking at a prospective gun buyer's history of misdemeanor convictions, including violent offenses and multiple convictions for impaired driving, could be more effective at preventing gun violence in the United States than by screening based on mental health treatment history. Uh, as for those who already own or have access to firearms, the researchers suggest the data could support dangerous persons gun removal laws like those in Connecticut uh, where the Newtown massacre was committed and Indiana or a gun violence restraining order law like California recently enacted uh, and that was in the wake of a shooting near a university and near a uh, tourist town in California such laws give family members and law enforcement a legal tool to immediately seize guns and prevent gun or ammunition purchases by people who show warning signs of impending violence. In 2012, more than 59,000 people were injured by the intentional use of firearms and another 11,622 were killed in violent gun incidents. That, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The Duke, Harvard, and Columbia analysis appears in a special issue of the journal, again called Behavioral Sciences and the Law, uh, <clears throat> that focuses on mental illness and gun violence. The article presents the first national estimates of the number of people who have access to guns and who also have a history of angry, impulsive behavior with or without a diagnosable mental illness. Well, <clears throat> what we can reasonably conclude from this is that since there are so few people with very serious mental illness who've had a history of involuntary psychiatric hospitalizations and there are many many more people out there who've not had such treatment who are walking around with angry and impulsive behavior and may have criminal histories uh, be, even if only misdemeanors because of their tendency to act out angrily and impulsively, the researchers basically conclude that looking at these patterns of 
convictions for violent offenses uh, or, or driving violations is a better way to screen out people who might be more dangerous with guns. Now, of course, uh, strict uh, Second Amendment right proponents would say that no one should have their gun rights restricted regardless, and that argument could be made. But clearly, as a society, we're not willing to give up our Second Amendment rights. You know, the, the public have made that very, very clear, and that's fine. So we have to look at ways in which we can promote safety uh, because people with mental health problems are out there and they have access to guns. We either have to accept it or do something about it. All right, we're going to take a break here. We'll be back with more mental health news after that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. This is Tracy Pearson with Prissy Tomboy. Listen to the Prissy Tomboy radio show every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time as I interview special guests that will inspire adventure and fitness for females. Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app, the sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Next topic on tonight's program, who will get post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD? A genetic breakthrough brings us closer to knowing. Now, when most people hear about PTSD, uh, they think of the combat veteran. Used to be we thought of the Vietnam War veteran. Now we have veterans with PTSD from Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, multiple Middle East deployments. But the fact is that while PTSD is certainly one of the most common mental health problems in the military, PTSD itself is certainly much more prevalent in the general population and certainly can be contracted from exposure to much more mundane everyday life traumas uh, as opposed to the extraordinary situation of finding oneself in uh, combat such as our soldiers and airmen and uh, seamen do. I'm talking about things in everyday life like fires, earthquakes, floods, assaults, rapes, robberies, and the like. And even chronic childhood or spousal abuse uh, also causes PTSD. So in order to better treat this problem, if we were able to determine in advance who would suffer from it after an exposure to terrible trauma, 
you know, that would be a huge advance in the diagnosis and treatment of PTSD. Uh, so, example, the article says, imagine a world in which you would be able to say, 10 people want to go to war, maybe we should only send these five. That's the sort of life-changing idea that researchers are racing toward as they close in on understanding the genetic component of PTSD. So among that 10 people that you're deploying to war, we could understand who is more and who is less vulnerable to developing PTSD and develop prevention strategies accordingly. Throughout their lifetimes, about 61% of men and 51% of women experience at least one traumatic experience. About 8% of people experience post-traumatic stress disorder, with about 5 million Americans suffering from it during any year. So if that's the case, if exposure to trauma is so widespread, half women and uh, almost two-thirds of men, why is it that less than 10% suffer from PTSD? Uh, this is what the researchers are trying to find out. War veterans, law enforcement officials, firefighters, and EMT workers are particularly vulnerable to PTSD, and women are twice as likely to experience it than men because they're on the front lines of experiencing the most extraordinary uh, traumatic events, things far outside the normal realm of human experience, which is pretty much the definition of the type of trauma that would cause PTSD. Now, PTSD has been a consistent headline in the media the past several years due to its link with veteran suicides. George Washington University's Face the Facts project estimates that one in five veterans of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars have been diagnosed with PTSD, and veterans account for 20% of suicides in the United States, claiming the lives of about 22 veterans every day. But doctors and researchers hope that soon we will be able to use the science of genetics to make these numbers much lower. In a novel study published several weeks ago from the Veterans Affairs San Diego Healthcare System and the University of California San Diego School of Medicine, researchers analyzed blood samples from Marines before and after deployment into combat zones. Past studies have focused solely on veterans diagnosed with PTSD after returning from combat. But this previous research has demonstrated that genetics are heavily involved in whether or not someone gets PTSD and could account for over 40% of one's risk. The control subjects in the study all had similar amounts of combat exposure and negative stress. The study found both similar and different biomarker signatures 
before developing PTSD and after. Most of the studies that have been performed regarding PTSD have looked at people with the disorder and compared them with people without it, comparing apples with oranges instead of apples with apples and following them over time. Interestingly, the genes involved in innate immune response, the body's first line of defense against infections, and interferon signaling, which is another immune modulator, were also, were also associated with PTSD. Interferons are proteins released in response to pathogens in our bodies, and in this study were also shown to partake in the pathology of PTSD. That means something may be stimulating this interferon response before PTSD ever develops. Researchers say a number of factors could be to blame, ranging from increased anticipatory stress before deployment to a more complex scenario where an individual may have a higher viral load? That's a question for future studies. The most powerful implications of this work could be that doctors could potentially identify people who may be susceptible to PTSD before they're ever exposed to a traumatic event. But while these findings are new and interesting, the research still has a long way to go. The hope is that someday you may not have to rely on asking someone how they feel to diagnose a specific disorder. You could just look at their blood. There would have to be a very specific test to differentiate between PTSD and other psychological or physiological distress, but in theory it could work. This study is just a first step. Well, I guess the take-home point beyond just the admittedly esoteric issues of the specific markers found in the blood, again, they're just, they're just typical markers of an elevated immune system response, all right? And we know that severe stress activates the fight-or-flight system, including immune system activation. They're just trying to refine the specific things that you can look for in the blood indicating vulnerability to PTSD. And, well, how might you generalize this if the method could be refined to the civilian population? Would we then test prospective candidates for the police academies or firefighting jobs or EMT jobs for these biomarkers? to see, well, you're not really a good candidate. You're more vulnerable to developing PTSD. I don't know if I'd feel completely comfortable with that if the person was otherwise capable. Hopefully, instead, what could happen is looking at these biomarkers would lead researchers to be able to find ways to prevent the reaction to trauma that results in PTSD Instead of just saying, well, you know, your blood indicates that you're more vulnerable to developing PTSD, so therefore we're not going to let you 
uh, work in a field with a high risk of exposure to trauma, even though you're otherwise well qualified and capable. Uh, let's let's hope it doesn't turn out that way. Let's hope instead it's used as a way of prevention, uh, but we'll see. And as for generally using that method to make diagnoses of other mental illnesses besides P- PTSD, well, that would certainly be amazingly wonderful and fantastic and would certainly bring the treatment of mental illness into the 21st century. Sometimes I feel like we're not even in the 20th century, but in any case, there's a long way to go till we get to that point, although this is an interesting and important first step. All right, next up on Psychiatry Today, have you ever heard of misophonia? That's right, misophonia, M-I-S-O-P-H-O-N-I-A. That is, if you didn't know what it was, literally translated, the hatred of sound. Um, Really more of just the vulnerability to being incredibly annoyed and irritated by common everyday sounds, which may not be people's favorites, but certainly don't cause an undue amount of frustration, stress, or even anger. But to the misophonic person, it really causes a severe amount of irritation. The article talks about a primary care physician who recently made an unusual confession in the New York Times. Dr. Baron Lerner admitted that some of the sounds his patients make, like loud yawns and sniffling, bug him a lot. He suffers from misophonia, a condition that causes people to feel irritated or even enraged or disgusted when they hear specific noises. I guess he better retire from his practice, right? I wouldn't want to be a patient of his. The most common culprits are eating sounds like lip smacking, handmade sounds, for example, pen clicking, and breathing sounds, including any activity in the nostrils. But it could be any common everyday sound that really gets people irritated. Uh, Think of the grandparent who cannot stand to be around noisy grandkids, for example. We have to take another commercial break here. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion and education about misophonia. You're listening to Psychiatry Today. We'll be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. 
This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps, a chronic sinus infection, or allergies that are either undertreated or have never been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we use state-of-the-art equipment so you can see the problem. You'll be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment because we believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery, correction of a nasal septal deviation, and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office, getting you back to work the next day. And you can rest assured that all options will be discussed before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app. The sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio. We're talking about misophonia, the hatred of sound or fear of sound. Bottom line, just being very, very unusually irritated by certain common everyday but possibly annoying sounds. Now, scientists don't fully understand why these noises cause so much angst for misophonia sufferers, but early research suggests a hyperconnectivity between the auditory system of the brain and the limbic system of the brain, which of course is the part of the brain that deals with emotions. Now, Dr. Lerner, who... Uh, wrote something in a magazine about his own issues with misophonia, uh, is a professor of medicine and population health at the New York University Langone Medical Center. He writes that one of the most frustrating aspects of misophonia is what he calls the incredulity factor. For years, he could not believe that his friends and relatives were not getting as upset as he was when it concerned what he considered to be rude behaviors. They were getting frustrated with him for his focusing on sounds that he found very disturbing and annoying, but they didn't even notice or hear. He imagined that noise-sensitive folks around the country were nodding in relief as they read Dr. Lerner's essay, and discovered they weren't alone. In the comments section, hundreds shared their own misophonic grievances, from the crinkling of a bag of chips to the grating scrape of a fork against a plate. The response led the New York Times to poll its readers on the most cringe-worthy sounds of all. 
The top five are in reverse order. Number five, knuckle cracking, 8% of the vote. Number four, nail clipping, 10% of the vote. A little surprising if you ask me. Number three, not so much a surprise, nose sniffling, 17% of the vote. Number two, gum chewing, 18% of the vote. Number one, most hated sound in the New York Times poll, soup slurping, 25% of the vote. Now, think you might have misophonia? Dr. Lerner says the website misophonia.com has a sample letter about the condition you can bring to your doctor And it also has a self-test. Now, I think the article leaves some things to be desired in terms of explaining exactly what this is. You know, for example, all right, so these sounds that came out, the top five most uh, cringeworthy, I guess they called it, of all sounds, soup, slurping, gum chewing, nose sniffling, Nail clipping, knuckle cracking, all right. Does anyone like to hear those sounds? No. But that doesn't mean you're misophonic, okay? To be considered misophonic, it has to be that these sounds are are beyond just annoying and irritating and set off some very extreme, severe reactions. Um, If you've ever heard someone say, I can't stand to hear blank noise, you know, fill in the blank. And, you know, never mind fingernails on a blackboard, you know, that that would bother anybody, I think. It's a question of degree, you know, so so these are, if it's confusing, like, well, no one likes these sounds, doesn't that mean we're all misophonic? No. Um, Again, it's, it's really, really severe intolerability of these noises, not just, okay, that's annoying, I'd rather not hear that, but it's not causing me great internal distress or anxiety or anger or rage or what have you. So it's really just the extremity and the severity of the reaction. Well, there you have it. If you're curious, go to Misophonia.com, that's M-I-S-O-P-H-O-N-I-A. Again, M-I-S-O-P-H-O-N-I-A.com. There's a sample letter about the condition you can bring to your doctor. For what purpose? I don't know. Uh, So why Dr. Lerner put that on that website is beyond me. What's your doctor supposed to do about it? Uh, Gives you an excuse not to have to put up with certain noises. Maybe if there's someone in the cubicle next to you at work making these noises, you can take this note to your boss and say that either you or they have to move. I don't know. But there's also apparently a self-test to see if you have misophonia. Well, there you go. All right. Next up on tonight's show, I think this is actually going to be a little more interesting You know, I always talk about, in the intro, things about the mind and the brain and human behavior. Well, here's an example of one of those really, really interesting uh, ways that neuroscientists have found a way to correlate the way we relate to each other 
and understand language and thought with specific structures and pathways in the brain. And it is you know, something so simple and something we take for granted in our daily discourse. Uh, and, and now we can understand the physical basis for it a little bit better. It has to do with why you get the joke they found the brain's sarcasm center. Sarcasm might feel like a natural way to communicate to many people, some people anyway, but it's sometimes lost on stroke survivors. Now, a new study finds that damage to a key structure in the brain may explain why some stroke survivors can't perceive sarcasm. That's right, you may not have been aware of this, but sometimes after a stroke, depending on where in the brain the damage was suffered, a, a stroke victim cannot perceive when someone is being sarcastic or not, even if they're being sarcastic in a nicer way, not so negative or insulting or threatening. Now, <clears throat> researchers looked at 24 people who had experienced a stroke in the right hemispheres of their brain. Those with damage to an area called the right sagittal striatum tended to have trouble recognizing sarcasm. This bundle of brain fibers connects a number of brain regions, including those that process auditory and visual information. The finding may help families caring for stroke survivors understand why their loved ones don't understand the reason for an eye roll or a certain tone of voice. Now, this study was published March 25th in the journal NeuroCase. That's N-E-U-R-O-C-A-S-E. Now, <clears throat> the one of the uh, lead authors on the study... Uh, Dr. Arj Hillis, uh, professor of neurology at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, said, We typically tell families that right hemisphere stroke survivors might have difficulty understanding sarcasm, so it's better just to be literal. If you want to say something, say it straightforwardly. Dr. Hillis has spent a large part of her career working with people who have lived through a right hemisphere of the brain stroke. These people have no problems in hearing and understanding words, unlike left-sided stroke victims, but they often misunderstand the meanings of sarcastic quips because they struggle to recognize a speaker's facial expressions, emotions, and intent. Even though they understand the words, there's often a real failure of communication. It's no wonder sarcasm can be hard to interpret. It's a complex way to communicate. And that's pretty easy to understand, right? There's a lot of subtleties in sarcasm, and uh, it takes young people a while before they learn to understand even what it is and to be able to pick up when someone's being sarcastic. First, the person has to understand the literal meaning of what someone says, and then the listener has to detect the components of sarcasm 
a wider range of pitch in the voice, greater emphatic stress on certain words, briefer pauses, lengthened syllables, and intensified loudness relative to sincere speech. There's a number of cues that people use when they're being sarcastic, and it's both facial cues and tone of voice. Earlier studies have linked damage to certain areas of the cortex of the brain, the surface area, to difficulties in understanding sarcasm, but it was less clear whether the brain's white matter tracks, which relay information between brain regions, also played a role. So to investigate, researchers took MRI brain scans of these 24 stroke patients and looked for damage in eight white matter tracts in each patient. The participants also took a sarcasm test in which they listened to 40 sentences spoken either sincerely or sarcastically and had to identify which was which. For example, one sentence was, this looks like a safe boat. You could see that can be taken literally or if someone's looking at uh, a leaky old thing about to sink, that would be sarcasm. Now, after the researchers controlled for age and education level, they found, again, that damage to this right sagittal striatum significantly impaired a person's ability to understand sarcasm. So it's not exactly a sarcasm center, but it's a pathway that's critical in understanding that aspect of language or discourse. Five of the participants had significant damage to this structure, and on the sarcasm test, they correctly identified only about 22% of the sarcastic statements compared with 50% of patients who didn't have damage to that structure. Well, let's take another commercial break here. We'll take, uh, we'll, we'll finish up our look at the results of the study and its implications for the rest of us, and we'll have other mental health related news. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app. The sharpest tool in your garden. 
Download it free on the App Store. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news. And we're talking about how something many, if not most of us, take for granted just the ability to understand when someone's being sarcastic or not. A right-sided stroke can rob you of that ability, and we're talking about how some scientists did MRIs on these stroke victims and figured out specific pathways that were damaged that accounts for the ability or losing the ability to understand sarcasm. Now, not only did these stroke victims do poorly in terms of recognizing when someone was using sarcasm or not, they also had trouble identifying sincere statements. Uh, they got the sincere statements correctly identified 57% of the time compared with 67% from a group that didn't have damage in this particular area. Now, if you just look at the averages, right, because you want to know what the average in the general population is, or these numbers are not relevant, generally speaking, 90% of people, or 90% of uh, the time, sarcastic statements are identified correctly. Now, as far as why this one area, the sagittal striatum, why damaging that would lead you to not be able to understand sarcasm? Well, this tract connects different parts of the brain, such as the frontal cortex of the brain, which is important for decision-making, and the thalamus, which processes both auditory and visual information. Future research may find ways to help people with damage to the right sagittal striatum regain the ability to recognize sarcastic cues But honestly, that seems far-fetched, which explains why the researchers wrote in the study, alternatively, family and friends can be counseled to avoid sarcasm to prevent misunderstandings. Well, while I admit this may be a little esoteric, I think what the article doesn't discuss, but what it means to me is that this has much broader implications than just helping right-sided stroke victims and their families with communication issues. Uh, By examining this part of the brain and these connecting tracts in the brain and how they work in people with other disorders, maybe we can learn more about them. Uh, Certainly people with um, certain autism spectrum disorders 
have trouble detecting emotional nuances in people's faces or speech, uh, say Asperger's disorder, for example. Uh, so really, I think just looking at it from the point of view of stroke victims and their family is too narrow. When we learn these fascinating, I think, things about the structures in the brain and how they translate into uh, everyday behavior and things like language and speech and understanding each other, uh, then it, it should and I hope will eventually be much more broadly applied to help everyone. <clears throat> now, this, uh, this next study definitely caught my eye. It's, uh, it purports to tell us something about why men always think women are flirting with them. <clears throat> now, just before we get to this actual article, I want to give you a little bit of background. Some time ago, I came across a study and talked about it on the show, where some social psychologists asked some platonic male-female pairs. In other words, these are male-female pairs, but they're, they're not romantically involved at all. They're, they're just uh, in platonic relationships. And they asked them some questions about some feelings that they had for each other or not. And it turned out that <clears throat> the men almost always erroneously concluded that their female friends certainly had uh, harbored romantic feelings toward them and uh, would definitely be interested in, in them. Whereas the women had no inkling whatsoever that the guys thought that way about them and had no feelings that way about their guy friends. Uh, so the point of the study was that men often assume that women are romantically interested in them and just don't get the fact that they're wrong about it almost all the time. So I thought of that immediately when I saw this study and I wondered if it possibly would would build on the findings of that other study or, or expand on them or, or what. So here goes. Now, most women have probably experienced being friendly around a man only to have it be misinterpreted as flirtatiousness. Come on, what woman in the, on the planet hasn't had that happen to her? Simple signals of interest in a conversation, smiling, laughing, being interested in a conversation, all are somehow perceived as come-ons instead of just plain being friendly. Now, <clears throat> according to the article, straight men in particular, research has found, are a lot more likely than straight women to fool themselves into thinking someone is romantically interested in them when they aren't. But what accounts for this gender difference? Now, uh, Mons Bendixson, a psychologist at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology, uh, wrote in a study recently published in a journal called Evolutionary Psychology. Uh, there are two main theories to explain this. Error management theory argues that men have evolved to overperceive 
sexual interest in non-familial female relationships so they don't miss out on the opportunity to mate or reproduce. At best, they get to pass on their genes. At worst, the woman ends up saying no and they move on. Women, on the other hand, have evolved to under-perceive sexual interest because sex with the wrong guy means risking pregnancy and child-rearing without the help of a mate, not to mention lost opportunities to procreate with other, less flaky men. In other words, the sexual stakes are higher for women than for men, or they were at least in the distant past when evolution shaped behaviors that linger to this day. Hmm. Well, make sense to you? Or sound hopelessly wacky instead? How about social roles theory, which on the other hand argues that gender differences in rates of sexual misperception, not to mention in other sorts of behavior, come down to societal norms and expectations. So in places that lack gender equality, one would expect a large disparity between men's level of misperception and women's, with the rates becoming more and more similar the more gender egalitarian a culture is. <clears throat> Dr. Ben Dixon realized that if the social roles theory were true, it would probably show up when you examined rates of sexual misperception in different countries. In places where there's more equality between the sexes, the social roles theory would predict that men would misinterpret women's interest about as much as women misinterpret men's. If, on the other hand, error management theory is true, then men's levels of overperception would be consistently higher everywhere since the bias comes down to evolutionary hardwired gender influences. <clears throat> now, if we think back to the <clears throat> other study I told you about, again, it was almost universal. Guys always think their platonic female friends are interested in them. So Ben Dixon decided to try to replicate a famous 2003 study about gender-based differences in sexual misperception, one that took place in the United States, in Norway, which is known for being very solid <clears throat> on the gender equality front. At the time, it was ranked in the top five most egalitarian countries on the UN's Gender Inequality Index, as compared to the U.S.'s rather poor rank of 42. These differences extend to the dating world. Norway is very sexually liberal compared to the U.S., and there a woman can play a more active and proactive part in dating than compared to an American woman without being subjected to the same degree of derogation. So, he took 308 heterosexual college students between 18 and 30, asked them the same questions, and we found that 88% uh, of women reported at least one incident when their friendliness was misinterpreted as sexual interest and that on average happened three and a half times in the last year alone. Men reported sexual misperception to the rate of 70.6%, far lower, 
similar to what was found in the original U.S. study, which found that 90% of women had this sexual misperception versus 70% of men. Now, Dr. Ben Dixon argues the results show that men's misperception of friendly signals can't be traced back to this unequal opportunities for men and women or misogynistic culture. He thinks it occurs across different cultures and demographic groups because it's a universal evolutionary adaptation. Despite cultural differences between two different countries, the errors are the same. Men and women make, make systematic errors to read each other's minds in dating and mating contexts. Now, two studies can't fully unravel all this. There's still a lot to be learned. But, you know, it does make a point. I mean, after all, they're comparing two very uh, wealthy, industrialized, Western-like um, educated countries. Still, uh, I think the point is made that it tends to be more hardwired. So, ladies, the next time a guy misinterprets your friendly smile in a sleazy way, try to keep in mind that somewhere deep in his brain, he may still be a bit of a caveman. Hmm, you think? All right, and with that, we'll close tonight's show. I hope that you found some of what I talked about anyway interesting and informative. Sorry about the weirdness with that last item and the misophonia, too. But in any case, I hope till we get together again next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.